This is LaQuest, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. Hi, everybody. I'm Don Andrews. Welcome to another episode of Look West. With me is producer Trinidad Santos. Hi, Trinidad. Hi, Don. Now, this past summer, we got this huge announcement that California is going to ban the sale of new gas-powered cars in 2035. That's a huge change in our personal transportation lives. It is. And it's not just cars that will be changing. An LAO report earlier this year shows all forms of transportation will be impacted by climate change. That means we need to redefine the way we think and use transportation. So we talked with Transportation Committee Chair Laura Friedman and electric vehicle driving Assemblymember Phil Ting. Trinidad, you spoke with Assemblymember Ting. Uh, I guess he kind of likes his electric car. Yeah, he sure does. He mentions one factor was a bit of a transition, but it's really been a great experience for him and he's definitely not going back to gas-powered cars anytime soon. We'll hear more from my talk with Assemblymember Ting in just a bit, but first, let's hear about Don's conversation with Assemblymember Friedman. It was an interesting conversation with Assemblymember Friedman. She talked to us about what roads will lead to California's transportation future and, well, she didn't pull any punches. We can see the effects of global warming right now, just looking around our state and looking around the world. While tens of thousands of people are displaced and thousands have been killed in flooding in Pakistan, uh, in California, here at home, we're seeing every single year in the last several years, um, heat, heat records falling as every year it gets hotter and hotter. Uh, we see fires raging around the state, not just in our typical fire months, but now all year round. And um, we're certainly in this prolonged drought, which could very well be um, what our future holds. Uh, So the effects are dramatic and they're very frightening and they're real and they're here now. I have NASA JPL in my district and that's home to some of the world's most premier climate scientists, uh, physicists, astronomers, and they have sounded the alarm. I mean, they called me and some of my colleagues into their office and there were over a hundred scientists sitting there saying, this is dire, why aren't you listening to us? We need to do something and what we're doing is not enough. We need to take radical and direct and fast action. So this should be an imperative for all of us. There was an op-ed that you penned just recently, uh, which included the phrase transportation injustice. That's another factor besides just the obvious wildfires and floods as a reason to discuss climate change and transportation. Can you tell us what transportation injustice is and why that matters here? Well, first, let me back up to the question you first asked about why transportation when it comes to climate. Um, Transportation accounts for around 40% of the pollution that causes global warming uh, here in California, and in some places even more. So when people think about warming, they tend to think about power generation, power plants, maybe large polluting industries with smokestacks. But most of the pollution is coming out of our tailpipes. It's coming from our cars and certainly coming from trucks. So decarbonizing transportation is incredibly important, but it's not just the vehicles themselves that lead to the pollution um, and the the injustices. Uh, The way that we use land in service to single passenger vehicles has huge impacts on climate, on sustainability, the amount of concrete that we use, the amount of roads that we build, the amount of concrete that we use to build giant parking lots. All of that means that we're not using the space for open space and plants and animals and for housing people. So there are profound uh, um, climate impacts to our over-reliance in the state on single passenger vehicles. In addition, 
people who can't afford to own and operate a car are, are really disadvantaged because we haven't invested as nearly as much in mass transit options and active transportation options as we have in infrastructure that is there just to service single passenger vehicles. And that's not fair. It's not fair to the people who are walking. It's not fair to the people who want to use active transportation like riding a bike. It's not fair to people who are transit dependent. And by the way, it's not just lower income people who are transit dependent. It's young people, students, and certainly elderly who, who can't drive for a variety of reasons. All of us have been there and all of us will be there. And I don't think anybody enjoys sitting in traffic for hours every day to get to work or to get around town. If you've been to major cities that have good mass transit, whether they're New York or Boston, even San Francisco, you realize that good mass transit is more convenient, it's more pleasant, it's much faster, uh, certainly less expensive than operating a car and without the environmental impacts. So there's a lot of reasons to invest in mass transit. And I'd say one other, which is building community. You know, we don't tend to think of each other as, as the same way and empathize with each other and get to know each other when we're zooming around everywhere encased inside our own little vehicle. When you're on the street and you're talking to people, you're looking them in the eye, you're smiling at them, you're building community, you're building empathy. And that's something that we in this nation certainly need to, to focus on right now in this particular political moment. Certainly changes how we view our neighbors when we see them someplace other than their car. Let's talk, if you don't mind, for a quick moment about this year's piece of legislation that you authored, AB 2348. What is that and why is it necessary? Sure. So I had introduced two bills this year, mm -hmm. um, AB 2438, which you mentioned, and AB 2237. Now, a few years ago, I had another piece of legislation, which was AB 285, which looked at the way that we can align our state and local transportation funding with our ambitious climate goals in the state. And what that report showed was that we're failing miserably when it comes to aligning the, what we spend money on in terms of transportation infrastructure and our climate goals with less than 4% of our transportation projects reducing emissions and, and building on what we call sustainable community strategies. So AB 2237 would have prohibited state funds from being used on projects that increase capacity for single passenger vehicles unless it met certain climate oriented requirements. It also would have ensured that local transportation tax measures don't hinder our planning, um, our local planning organizations for meeting the targets which they've had now for 14 years in law to build and plan for sustainable communities, meaning communities that don't sprawl, that offer robust housing options, and that give people options other than driving around. Now that bill was held this year in the Senate Transportation Committee, and we're gonna continue to work on that throughout the rest of this year and try to reintroduce it next year. AB 2438, that will require five of the state's largest transportation funding programs to transparently incorporate appropriate principles from what's called CAPTI, and that's the State Climate Action Plan on Transportation Infrastructure. Okay. So what that means is that we want our large transportation projects to talk about whether they're going to increase emissions from cars or decrease emissions from cars, and hopefully to take that data into account. It's sort of surprising to people that with all of the climate goals that California has, we don't incorporate climate goals into the way that we fund transportation projects. So we could use billions of dollars of state funding and local funding 
for instance, for a project that we know going in is going to radically increase pollution and increase emissions, and there's nothing to even record that we're doing that, much less stop it. We need to start thinking about where we invest our dollars and make sure that they do so in a way that reduces emissions, that provides good mobility to people, and also does so in a way that's sustainable and equitable. And that's what this legislation will help to do. The LAO report, I believe, uses the phrase climate lens. That's what you're describing here, isn't it? Sure. And we look at power generation through a climate lens. We try to look at a lot of what we do in the state through a climate lens, given how important pushing back on climate is and also how impactful it's going to be. You know, the other part that we haven't talked about is whether those projects that we're doing are resilient enough to withstand what's coming from extreme heat, from sea level rise, from all of the other impacts of global warming. So we need to start thinking about a lot of these policies through a climate lens. And, you know, the side effect of this is this is synonymous with decreasing pollution. So even if you don't believe in in climate change for some reason, you think everything that's happening is just sort of a coincidence, at least think about We know, and I don't think anyone denies, that tailpipe pollution also leads to asthma and children, um, respiratory diseases, um, leads to all kinds of really bad effects. So even if you don't care about climate change, maybe you do care about local pollution and smog. And so we're really talking about the same thing. We're talking about reducing pollution and living in communities that are greener, that give you more options for mobility, uh, that are more pleasant to live in and more equitable for people in terms of not having to to own and operate and put gasoline in a car. The LAO report also had a couple of other conclusions, specifically where and how transportation systems of the future should be built. Uh, Did they get that right? And what do you envision as the future of where and how transportation systems will operate in California? Yeah, it also talked about the fact that a lot of our large infrastructure projects tend to go through economically disadvantaged communities of color. So we see over and over again for the past 60, 70 years, communities of color where imminent domain is used, people are evicted, highways are put right through communities, dividing communities in half, sometimes taking, uh, making it to where communities can't access parks and open space. The same kind of projects rarely go through wealthy areas. The wealthy areas have the wherewithal to, to push back, to, to advocate for themselves and, um, uh, are listened to more by people in power. So, you know, it's important that we also think about the harm that we do when we do large, particularly highway projects, quite honestly, because they tend to be larger, impactful, and they bring a lot more pollution into neighborhoods. Whatever decisions are made uh, transportation-wise in California, it'll affect the current system. How hard is it going to be for Californians to adapt to these changing transportation, the changing world of transportation? Well, one of the things that people always say is that, you know, they need to have a car, you know, because LA, for instance, is so sprawling. And that's absolutely true. And I wouldn't suggest that people, you know, necessarily try to ride their bike if they're, you know, living 20, 30 miles from where they work. I mean, some people do that, you know, bless them, I can't do it. Um, So it's not necessarily someone's fault that they're dependent on an automobile. The problem is that we've built our cities to only allow for that. And so what we need to do is to now Um, call for and don't fight, you know, support the efforts to bring mass transit into our communities, which means not just light rail, with light rail is wonderful, but also bus rapid transit and other other types of mass transit systems 
that help give people options. Uh, bike lanes, you know, we, we in, my, in my city in Glendale, we have people fighting against a bike lane that would go, you know, next to a wash. Um, you know, that's something that would allow people to, to get off the streets, to ride bikes to our community college, uh, you know, to the LA River bike path safely without being in danger, you know, riding in the street. It would also um, make it for people who are driving, you know, a little bit uh, easier to not have to navigate around bicycles in the street. And yet we have a lot of residents fighting the bike path. You know, we have to be willing to share, to share our spaces, to allow for change, to realize that there's a greater good that needs to be serviced. And, you know, we can't be afraid to, if we're, if we're going to be sustainable, we can't say that we're willing to do only a few things, but nothing if it affects us near where we live. Um, we all have to be willing to make changes. So I would say that all of us can start um, thinking a little more globally, thinking about what's possible and uh, being optimistic that we can have better things. We can live in a way that's more pleasant and more convenient and less expensive um, and, and do that while we reduce um, global warming. Can you describe for us what the funding sources you envision to make these transportation improvements? Well, we have a myriad of funding sources in California. They really come from many different places. Gas tax is one of them. That's a major source of funding. And that's something that we're going to have to rethink as we move to zero emission vehicles. Where we're probably going to end up going is some sort of uh, road use tax as opposed to a gas tax. So that people who use the roads more uh, pay as they use it. And people who just have a car sitting, for instance, in a garage aren't using it, won't pay when they're not driving. Um, so there are ways of replacing the gas tax that are actually more equitable because people that are lower income tend to drive cars that have worse mileage because they're older vehicles. They end up paying more in gas tax. And then someone who's super wealthy who right now, let's say drives a Tesla, doesn't pay uh, for the maintenance of those roads very much because they're not putting gas in their vehicle. And a lot of people see that as you know moving into the future as being not just unfair, but really untenable, right? If all the cars end up being zero emission, if they're not using gasoline, we have to find another way to pay for the road maintenance, keeping the bridges up, everything else. So we will have to find a replacement at some, in, at some point, but it will be also nice for that to reward behavior that helps society and, and sort of uh, put more of a burden on people who are taxing the system more. You know, For instance, larger heavy vehicles, like some of our large SUVs, put a lot more wear and tear on the road than someone who's driving a Prius. You know, so shouldn't they pay a little more um, for that? Uh, people who are driving into places that are very congested when they could be taking mass transit, why not have them pay more? That's what a lot of other uh, nations are doing now and what cities are experimenting with. As we wrap this up, California has been a leader on a lot of issues over the years, environment, environmental issues uh, often uh, as well. Is California still a leader? Can other countries, states, look west to California when it comes to transportation issues uh, and its relationship to climate change? When it comes to transportation, we're definitely not a leader, not in the world. Uh, you look at a lot of other um, large cities who were once congested like ours and filled with cars and see them now as being cities where people are getting around through mass transit and bicycles and people are happy and they're healthy. These are not people that are another species. These are human beings just like us. And these are cities that we all wanna visit. We're talking Paris, we're talking Amsterdam, we're talking Denmark. There's so many places in the world now that have been moving in this direction, solving their mobility problems and ending up with a healthier, happier uh, population. We just are going kicking and screaming. Um, so I think we have a lot of work to do where nobody sees California as a leader in transportation, absolutely nobody. Uh, I think we're seeing as 
being very backwards and being very difficult to navigate and get around, quite honestly. Um, so um, I do think that we will all benefit from, from some changes. And I'll, I'll say one other thing, which mm -hmm. is that we have seen it about a 30% increase in serious deaths, serious accidents, injuries, and deaths, primarily for pedestrians and cyclists over the past few years because of traffic violence. So this is also a public health crisis. You know, if we had 30,000 people dying every year in plane crashes, we would have grounded our fleet long ago. And yet we've come to accept not just that amount of deaths, but an increasing amount of deaths from traffic violence as some kind of collateral damage that's unavoidable. It's not unavoidable. And so we need to do a lot more. And a lot of that has to do with getting people out of cars um, because it's, it's become, if you have a child as I do, one of the leading sources of death for children. And that's just, it's not acceptable. As a mom, that must feel an added sense of urgency then. Absolutely. Thank you very much for being part of the episode today. Thank you. Not long after Don spoke with Assemblymember Friedman, I was able to speak with Assemblymember Ting, who offered a lot of interesting insights. But of course, my first question had to be, how are you enjoying your electric vehicle? So I'm on my second electric vehicle. I started by driving a Chevy Bolt uh, when it first came out, and I just recently switched to a Tesla Model Y because I wanted a four-wheel drive, and I thought both cars were amazing. The, the uh, driving experience as well as the interior experience. Uh, most people who go from gas cars to electric vehicles love driving them and don't really want to go back. And so for me, um, just uh, the, the pickup, the way it handles uh, was just an absolutely wonderful experience. And I think it was very much in line with most, most EV drivers. Mm -hmm. What about also the feeling that, you know, you're saving the environment? I imagine that's also uh, also pretty big plus for EVs. Well, well, the best the best uh, feeling was not ever having to pump gas. I mean, no, no one really loves going into a gas station, the smell of it, just uh, the, the chemicals, um, knowing that I wasn't pumping gas and knowing that I wasn't spewing out greenhouse gases was was wonderful. Uh, it also saved me a lot of money because instead of pumping gas, I was using electricity and it was much cheaper to uh, fuel my car. As, as you know, I, I commute a lot more than most people put about 20 plus thousand miles in my car every year. And so that was um, absolutely uh, game changing for me just to be able to charge um, in my house rather than having to go to a gas station. Uh, the, the main challenge was figuring out how to wash my windows because that's usually when you wash your windows is you go to the gas station, you wash your windows. So I had to you know, kind of get my own equipment at home to kind of wash my windows and do that. But that was, that was the only major uh, change for me that I had to incorporate. Nice. All right. The Clean Cars 2035 promise is an enviable one. Can you explain to us what it does and why it's so revolutionary for climate? Yeah, well, it's actually, it actually is revolutionary for the United States, but unfortunately, it's not really revolutionary relative to the rest of the world. England, France, Norway, India have already moved in this direction. Um, you know, we, we unfortunately are all, the only state to do it so far, but more states should be following us. But it's a, it's a major move for a state in the United States because it starts to signal to the auto industry what they need to do in the long term. And uh, part of it was, part of this is accelerating what they were talking about doing, which was producing new clean cars. And, and all, and all the, the executive order does, it says, hey, after 2035, you can't sell new 
dirty vehicles here in California. Doesn't mean you can't drive them. Doesn't mean you can't um, have a used vehicle that you've maintained for you know ten years or five years or three years or even you know one year. It just says you can't go buy a new one after after that 2035 deadline. And what it says to the automakers is, if you want to do business in California, you better be uh, looking forward on how you're going to fully transition and sell only new electric vehicles or new clean vehicles, zero emission vehicles, here in the state. So it's it's groundbreaking. It gets the auto manufacturer forces the auto manufacturers to think in the future. It also gets people to start planning for the future. And the one key piece that we need to do is if you look at, there's a significant significant amount of infrastructure for gas cars. And what I mean by that is gas stations. You know, people, people would have range anxiety if they didn't think they could get gas somewhere in California. And there's almost no place in California where you can't get gasoline. Well, there's actually no place in California where you can't get electricity as well. The challenge is, is getting that electricity from a building into your car and, 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 and in a speed that kind of works uh, for your lifestyle. So uh, we are in the process of making huge investments in the state, as well as uh, the three major independent operating utilities are making huge investments on the state to really uh, ramp up charging infrastructure. So I think that's going to be uh, a major, uh, you know, a major piece of our uh, our, our work in terms of how the state helps us with transitioning these vehicles. You actually had your own Clean Cars 2040 legislation back in 2018. Can you tell us how it was received at the time and how it started the conversation needed for later legislation? Yeah, I mean, the the legislation came about when I first started watching England and France declare that they were going to go to completely clean cars. I thought it was ridiculous that we were not leading the conversation that we were just simply um, ignoring the conversation. And so when I introduced that legislation, it got a significant amount of attention, a significant amount of press. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't get a hearing, even in our uh, own assembly transportation committee. And, and unfortunately, the bill uh, ended up not going uh, very far. And so uh, to me, uh, it helped really jumpstart everybody's thinking in the state and really got the conversation going. And what we found was that a lot of people were very excited about what was happening. Uh, in that direction. And a lot of people were really wanting us to move in that direction. So I was really proud of the governor to do the executive order. I think the legislation uh, will continue even today, have a very difficult time in our legislature because there's just a, a lot of fear around change and a lot of fear about how we would actually uh, transition to clean vehicles, even though I think uh, we're going to transition pretty, pretty seamlessly. You're currently the chair of the budget committee. Can you tell us a bit about some budget items relating to EVs? How are they working to encourage the public to view EVs as within reach? I think a number of major items uh, within the budget uh, that we've been looking at. One is to increase the amount of money for our clean vehicle rebate program. Uh, One is to incentivize more clean car purchases, new clean car purchases. Uh, We also have a program to incentivize used cars. Uh, clean car purchases or also used cleaner car purchases. Uh, And the reason that's so critical is right now, most uh, middle income to working families, they don't buy new cars, they buy used cars. And before, you know, five years ago, you didn't have any used clean cars because there were barely any new clean cars. So uh, now that we actually have a robust used clean car market, we're also trying to incentivize people to buy 
uh, clean used cars as well. Um, and they come fairly affordable because a lot of the depreciation is up front for these clean cars. Uh, the other piece is really in properly incentivizing what I was talking about earlier, which is uh, EV charging infrastructure. Uh, in last year's budget, we allocated about 500 million for public charging stations. And in this year's budget, we allocated about 250 million for um, uh, clean car charging stations. And so that is a major step and moving toward uh, clean vehicle adoption. So overall, we've done about $6 billion in zero emission vehicles. Um, $185 million was also dedicated to clean trucks, buses, and off-road equipment. Um, and so that's absolutely critical because we want to make sure that fleets are starting to modernize and become zero emission as well. Let's move on to legislation. So let's talk about AB 2061. What does it do and why is it important? Well, AB 2061, which got signed into law, created a policy, creates a policy framework to track EV charging stations reliability and assess if there are any underlying equitable, equitable access issues uh, beginning in June 1st of 2025. The reason that's so important is because uh, significant number of people have range anxiety. They don't know where to charge their cars. They're worried about their running out of electricity and, and knowing where those stations are and knowing that they can get that charge and get a quick charge to get home or get to work is absolutely critical. Part of it is we really have no idea of how many stations are actually working or not. Uh, you know, having, having been an EV owner since 2017, uh, I've pulled up to many stations where you see that out of order sign or that out of order message. And, and there's, no, there's no real way to uh, find that information on the internet. Uh, it's hard to get real-time information. Uh, obviously, if that was the way gas stations operate, I think you'd have a lot more nervousness around um, people who drive gas cars. Uh, but you know, having electric vehicle charging reliability and having that information be public so that those companies can really improve their reliability will be a huge win for California drivers. EVs are proclaimed to be the cars of the future. Can you talk about some of the changes we need to make to ensure we are ready for them to be the cars of the present? Well, I think one thing is, is ensuring that people get more and more comfortable with electric vehicles. Uh, I know that if people drive electric vehicles, they automatically feel uh, more comfortable. If they understand where they can charge electric vehicles, they, they automatically get more comfortable. But, that, but that's a hurdle. People are used to gas cars. They know where to fill up gasoline. Uh, they know how they, how they run. Uh, so there is, there is a little bit of fear, but I think it really is up to us to educate people. What I find is oftentimes the, the best um, proselytizers of electric vehicles are people who drive electric vehicles like me, because people see me driving an electric vehicle and they get into an electric vehicle, they realize, oh, this is a great car. It's a lot of, it's very comfortable, drives really well. Uh, and so they really enjoyed that experience. And so I think really helping get people comfortable with that. I think the other major change will be for the longest time, electric vehicles were only primarily sedans. And, and as, as you know, the most popular segments of cars are like pickup trucks, SUVs, minivans, and there were no, almost no clean options in any of those categories. Now that we're starting to see trucks come out, SUVs come out, minivan, you know, minivans will be coming out. That's going to be a major shift. So, so that, you, you know, the, the kind of car consumers want, um, they'll be able to get in a clean version. So I think for a lot of people, even if they wanted to get a clean car, they go, wow, for my pickup truck, there's no clean option. 
So I can't even think about it. But now that Ford's coming out with an F-150, Chevy's coming out with their Silverado, they're going to be completely clean. I think that those are going to be game changing. And once people start driving, then you're really going to see a lot of these myths go away. There's been a lot of myths and fear mongering um, about performance and, and what electric vehicles can or can't do. But I think once people start driving their cars, they're not going to want to go back to the gas version of their car. Okay, last question. Are there any final issues you'd like to talk about or any last parting words you'd like to give us? Well, well again, I always say like, you know, if you want clean air, you need clean cars. Uh, it's absolutely critical uh, when you look at all the air pollution in Los Angeles and the Central Valley. Um, you know, people, people always look to the UPS trucks or the 18 wheelers as the main cause for the pollution, whereas 80% of the pollution is really due to you and me driving sedans, going to work. Uh, you know, taking our kids to school. So we need to really look at ourselves and how we're going to change our habits. And that's why, as a state, we're forcing everyone to change together. And we're hoping that there's going to be greater, greater adoption. I think there's some good news. Uh, this year in California, the top two selling cars in, in the entire state are the Tesla Model 3 and the Tesla Model Y. So I think even at that price point, there's a lot of interest in people buying those cars. And so, um, you know, I'm excited about the future. I'm very promised. Uh, I, I feel a lot of, there's a lot of promise out there in electric vehicles. And I'm excited that California continues to have a vision around clean transportation, around clean air, and continues to lead the way as we move to an electric and clean car future. Our thanks to Assemblymember Phil Ting for talking with Trinidad and Transportation Committee Chair Laura Friedman for being part of this episode as well. With producer Trinidad Santos, I'm Don Andrews. This is Look West. Thanks to all of you for listening. The Look West podcast is produced by California Assembly Democrats. When you think of Californian politics, remember to look west.